This week on Life and Faith. What dogs have is not more intelligence than other animals, because they don't, but a particular disposition to love. They really form bonds with humans, and they give humans so much. They're very easy to love. We have this sense that we've got to always say yes to every opportunity. And of course in politics there is a real tendency to be looking for the decision that gives you the media hit. Definitions of human nature affect who counts as human. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Cats and dogs. Well... Everyone's got an opinion on this, but our companion animals, as they're called, might also be a gateway to speculation about the spiritual life. But first, an important question, Justine, are you a dog person, are you a cat lover, or none of these things? Technically, I'm none of these things, but I think (laughs) I'm a dog person in theory. I like everything that I hear about dogs. Mm. I just don't know if I could cope with the reality of owning one, (laughs) and... I really like cats as well. I mean, I kind of like how independent and how unbothered they are Yes. by anything, really. But everything you're talking about is theoretical rather than Yeah, I'm actual. so sorry. I'm that person yeah. in this room. Yep. Well, I used to be like that. <laughs> oh, yeah? Because I know you are a dog person mm. these I'm days. I'm a convert. I'm a, a, like a true conversion experience. Okay, so tell me. us about Ziggy then. Ziggy is my family's dog. He's a little staffy cross with all sorts of things. And we got him when the kids were fairly young and, although not really young, so a bit older than your kids. I mm. think I, I can understand why you're a bit hesitant. <laughs> You've got enough on your plate. But yeah, we got Ziggy about seven or eight years ago now and he's just a champion dog. I love him. And he's become a key member of our family and he's loyal. He's a kind of full enthusiast about anything <laughs> in life. Anything you want to do, he's up for it. And uh, he's just itching to get out and do stuff. He's just really happy and incredibly loyal. There's a lot of dogs that will run off if you go outside with them, but he, he never will. He just stays sort of with you. He darts around, but he keeps you within an eye shot. Okay, so it's not as though he's timid. No, no, he's no. He's actually he just, really interested, but he just really digs his owners or his, his friends, his companions. Yeah, <laughs> it's good to have someone dig you. And, and, and as you get home, you know, the welcome is always so enthusiastic. <laughs> no, no, he's great. We love him. And I've become, because of that, in a way that I never was, super interested in other dogs too. So if I see oh. people's dogs, I'm always like, oh, you know, I love So it's them. opened up parts of your heart that you didn't realize were there. We're closed off, Justine, <laughs> and they're now completely open and, and welcoming. Um, so, you know, bring your dog over to my place. Uh, look, dogs seem to be everywhere right now, Justine. And it's not just because every other family got a cat or dog during lockdown evidently. But according to a 2021 survey conducted by Animal Medicines Australia, 69% of Australian households own a pet. And this is up from uh, 61% in 2019. People say this is led by a surge in dog ownership, especially 47% of households now have a dog, 30% a cat. So Australia in our two pet system has brought in the verdict, dogs are the favourite. Yes. And I think um, even if lots of people got a dog or something during lockdown, 
obviously we've tried to pretend that we're back to normal life now and school's gone back and people are kind of trickling back to the office. So it turns out that on the other side of lockdowns, people have often given their dogs back, which is actually quite sad. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, so those numbers maybe aren't as precise now. (laughs) But I can see why people got a pandemic puppy because, like, they're gorgeous. You know, it's such a miserable time in lockdown. You just want some joy in your life. And even if you can't leave the house and then come home to have that warm welcome that you get from Ziggy, it's always nice to know that someone in the house loves you, right? How could you not want such joy and affection around you 24-7, especially in the cold winter of a lockdown that we had? (laughs) Yes, but you were right to be kind of cautious about being a dog owner as people are finding out. It does, it's Mm. a massive, massive commitment. Those of us who are converts tell you that it's worth it, but yeah, you need to go in with your eyes wide open. But people often note this huge difference between cats and dogs. There's a lot of comedy to be mined here. So here is Ricky Gervais on Ellen a few years ago. There's this lovely thing that says, um, dogs have owners, cats have staff. Uh-huh. Which is so true. That is so true. That's so true, yeah, yeah. So you're more of a cat person because you have a cat, but would you no, think about getting a I dog? No, lo- I love all animals and I wish I could have a dog, but I travel so much. I, I, it's, I think, yeah, a cat, you can leave it. You go, I'm going, it goes, whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> a dog says, well, I'm, am I coming? Yeah. And I, I, that look goes, what have I done wrong? I know. I know, I, I couldn't do it. That's the big difference as well between cats and dogs, that a cat doesn't rate you doesn't care for you, it doesn't think you're the... A dog thinks you're the best thing ever. That's what... Anything you do is a great idea. If you say, do you want to go for a walk? He goes, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Do you want to go back? Yes. That's the best thing. Whatever you're doing, a dog goes, you're you're amazing. Yeah. That is... A cat goes, what do you call that? That's awful. Yeah. That's the big difference. But But I I love them. I I love cats. They're independent. Well, some people have seen these differences between dogs and cats and they've imposed them on ideas that people have about God. (laughs) So, for example, there's this meme that I've seen where the dog says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. (laughs) Whereas the cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me. I must be God. <laughs> or as, uh, as Ricky Gervais said, dogs have owners, cats have staff. They're mm. very different, aren't they? They but are. Later on in Life and Faith, we'll be speaking to one dog lover who links dogs with God. But first, we're going to talk about cats and how they shed some light on the human experience. Yeah, I recently read this book called Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment, and it's by Benjamin and Jenna Story, and in it they're talking about the 16th century French thinker Montaigne. Now, <laughs> so, just just go with me, okay? No, I was just saying, just go with sublime me. sublime to the ridiculous me talking about Ziggy, <laughs> and now you're bringing up the 16th century philosophers. Well, anyway, sure. their, their point is that modern people who are wanting to be happy, they're saying that we all live in the wake of Montan. Because Montan, uh, for him, the secret of happiness is to make your home in this world rather than any other. So don't worry about God, don't worry about heaven, don't worry about eternity, just focus on this life now. <laughs> and the authors describe this kind of attitude to life as, quote unquote, seeking happiness like a cat lying in the sun. Mm. Now, if you've seen a cat do that, you know instantly what they're talking about. It's so vivid. The cat is totally content, no worries at all. They're in the moment and they're completely unbothered. They're saying that summarizes what Montan was saying about 
living your life simply in the here and now. Don't worry about anything else. Okay. Well, Nick Spencer recently talked about this with John Gray, who's a philosopher, who wrote a book, Feline Philosophy, Cats and the Meaning of Life. Uh, Nick is a senior research fellow at Theos in the UK. He's a good friend of CPX. And so this comes from his podcast, Reading Our Times. As you said at one point, cats are happy being themselves. Yes. While humans try to be happy by escaping themselves. And it strikes me that this is the kind of, as it were, the pivot point of the book. Is, where, yes. where you see in, in cats a natural happiness within their own skin, whereas the human condition is to be aware of their own skin and to, in some sense, be unhappy with that condition. Is yes. that a fair summary? It is entirely fair summary. The way I put it in the book is that for... But cats aren't active. They revert to their natural contentment with themselves as with the natures they have and their position in the world is the default condition of cats as far as we can possibly tell. I think there's no reason to doubt that. I mean, they don't show signs unless they've been somehow traumatized or kept in unnatural environments. They don't show signs. As far as we know, there's no feline version of gambling. <laughs> there's no feline version of war. Cats have conflict but they don't organize themselves for war. The many signs that Pascal, who I quote in the book for his wonderful analysis of what he called in the English diversion, uh, he interpreted most of human activity, actually, or large parts of it anyway, as diversion. Uh, he thought that what human beings were diverting themselves from was an awareness of their own mortality and of the fact that they're going to die. But in cats, there's no sign of that at all. You then have to ask, why are humans in this respect? Because in many respects, I'm arguing that humans are very like other animals because they emerge in the same way and have many of the same limitations. But they're also very different from other animals, and especially in this way, which is that they seem by nature to be discontented with their nature, mm. are unhappy with the nature they've got. Or to put it in the terms of Christian theology, they, um, they are somehow aware, even if they deny that they're fallen creatures, that there's something wrong with them. And even outside of Christianity, by the way, I mean, it wouldn't be uh, what we would normally think of as a moral failing, but in Buddhism, for example, there's the idea that humans who reflect on their nature find that they suffer, mm. that suffering is intrinsic to their nature. They also find that they're ignorant of something. And so that's the contrast I'm drawing between humans and other animals. Yeah. You preempt actually several of my questions or several of my points. I'm glad you mentioned Pascal because I was really struck by how much he came up in the book and I do yes. want to talk about him. But before I do, I want to pick up, I think, on this really important point of the fall you talked about. That. Yeah. I, I once, I remember, described you in a, in a conversation we had as a as a very scriptural thinker whose Bible ends at Genesis 3. In, in, <laughs> yes. in other words, yeah. you take the, the Old story yeah. of the fall and the nature of, of the, the Christian idea of a fallen human condition very, very seriously. And at I one do, point yeah. you say in the book, which I think is quite profound, you can only be in paradise when you do not know what it is to be in paradise. Yes. In other words, it's intrinsic to human nature that we can't be contented with where we are because we have this wider yeah. conception of the possible yes. or of what could be different about our nature. It's part of being human. Yes. Part of, it's part of the meaning of being human. Yes. Humans, as far as soon as they became recognisably human, had this experience, and you could say, well, when did they become recognizable? Well, one way, possible way, I don't say there's only one, 
is when they started to bury themselves and have rituals around death. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. Whenever that happened, human beings were becoming what human beings are now. That's to say, not only that they have some sense that something can happen to them or to their other members of their species, which is very bad and which sort of ends their lives. Maybe other animals can have that. Mm. Elephants famously gather around exactly. there. But what other animals, including cats, don't appear to have is the sense of mortality permeating their lives. Yes. And that's what humans do have. So my speculation as to what generated it was the awareness of mortality that comes with self-consciousness. So mm -hmm. thought is the fall, or at least thought of a particular kind, self-reflexive thought, which then reflects on the situation it finds itself in this self, and which is one of not just a finitude, but of mortality. And that can be expressed, of course, in fear of one's own death. Mm -hmm. But I think actually for a great many people, a larger fear or a larger unhappiness comes from bereavement. Yes. So they might say, well, I'm happy to go, or I can go tomorrow, but I don't want so-and-so to go, and I don't want them to go forever. Yes. These are emotions which don't seem to exist in animals as far as... I mean, animals do seem to mourn the loss of their partners for some time, sometimes mm. bitterly. That's certainly a feature. But they don't live in the fear of that loss. Yes. That's the difference. Yes. They don't live in the reflective fear of, well, this might happen five years from now, or... 10 years from now, or 50 years from now, and it'll be terrible. Mm. Uh, their lives aren't shaped by that fear, as far mm. as we can tell. We'll leave Nick's interview there, but you really should check out the whole episode. It's fantastic. After this particular bit in the interview, they go on to discuss philosophy as the search for equilibrium or tranquility, right? And John Gray suggests that if that's your goal, tranquility, then clearly your main problem is one of chronic anxiety, so it's as though the human animal, let's say, is weighed down by many cares, whereas cats, on the other hand, aren't. You're listening to Life of Faith from CPX, and we're getting very controversial this week. We're talking dogs and cats. So as you've heard, the philosopher John Gray observes that cats illuminate the difference being human makes. We stress, they don't. What about dogs? How can they tell us something about how we are in the world? A Dog's World with Tony Armstrong recently aired on the ABC, and it claims to probe the science behind people's relationships with dogs and answer the question that all dog owners are dying to know. Do my dogs really love me? Here's a clip from Gogglebox to give you a sense of the show. The best evidence yet that dogs genuinely care about us is built into their DNA. So we've identified three genes which have changed from wolf to dog genes that give them the capacity to form strong, loving bonds with people. So it's in their genes to love us. He loves us. He oh, loves yeah. us. It is not traditional intelligence that has forged our close relationship with dogs. It is their innate ability to understand us and to love us that makes dogs humanity's best friend. They just love you. They're like, hey, man, I don't care what you are or what you've done. I love you. Yep, he went there. The L word. Obviously, this is not exactly the word that scientists reach for when studying animal behaviour because they're generally wary of projecting onto animals human qualities. 
But Clive Wynn, a professor of psychology and the founder of the Canine Science Laboratory at Arizona State University, he was also one of the voices you heard in that Gogglebox clip, he's claimed that dogs love people. And he even wrote a whole book about it called Dog Is Love. And people in the know would recognise the fabulous play on words going on there because typically the phrase is God is love. But here it's reversed. Anyway, here's Professor Wynne on a radio interview where he gives us a sense of what he means. My family decided to take on a dog. We hadn't actually had a dog for a variety of reasons for a few years, but we decided it was time we got a new dog. And so we got this dog. It's right here next to me now as I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. Let's say her name, her ears will twitch. So we got Zephos. Uh-huh. Yeah, it twitch, yep. Yeah. We got Zephos seven years ago. And she started explaining it to me, really, honestly, John. She started explaining to me what it was that's special about her kind. And what's special is not some special, unique form of intelligence, but this amazing capacity, desire to form strong emotional bonds, which in my scientific writing I call, you know, we have to come up with long words, right? We have to come up with long words. We've got hypersociability. We've got uh, exaggerated gregariousness. You know, these are the kinds of words you can put in a scientific report. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to it, we're just talking about love. Yeah. What makes dogs so successful is their amazing capacity to form loving connections with members of other species. That's their secret superpower. That's Clive Wynn, founder of the Canine Science Laboratory at Arizona State University, answering the question that we, we all know, Justine, if you're a dog owner. He, your dog, <laughs> think he really does love me. But we thought we'd talk to the biggest dog tragic on the CPX team, Barney Schwartz. He's dedicated at least two columns to what dogs have to teach us about God. And apparently these are the most popular columns he's ever written for CBX. Yes, and let's be clear, Barney is speaking here as a dog lover. He's not a scientist and he's not a theologian, but he's always had dogs, mostly rescue dogs. Uh, His last two dogs, however, Nessie and Lenny, who he'll tell us about, they've been with Barney and his family since they were puppies. So there's obviously a really special bond there. So I wanted to ask him to expand on that connection he senses between dogs and God. Lenny we got in 2005, and it was a, at a very difficult time because our son Sam had just relapsed. Uh, it was his third relapse or second relapse. He had about five or six, and he was feeling really sick from the chemo, and he wouldn't even come into the shop to look at Lenny. But it didn't take long before they really bonded. And Lenny, if he was anybody's, he was Sam's dog. He was a Border Collie Whippet. Uh, very pretty, very smart, very easy to train. He was so good that where we uh, went for training, they wanted to become a circus dog and learn circus tricks for their special um, things that they did. But that would have meant me driving 35 kilometres every night. And I thought, no way. But he was he was he had a beautiful nature. I think Border Collies are, I think, my favourite dogs. And so I, I've always, Border Collie crosses, therefore, are perfect for me. And he was a Border Collie Whippet. He was quite small, black and white, with an alert little face and a loving nature. So tell me about that special connection with him and Sam. What was going on there? Like, they were obviously kindred spirits, really. That's very nicely put. It's a mystery. Uh, There's a book called Dog is Love, uh, which which I think is a lovely title. And it's by a, a scientist who says that what dogs offer and we can trace this genetically back to the time of the wolves, 
uh, and the separation between dogs and wolves over the last few thousand years, what dogs have is a, not more intelligence than other animals, because they don't, but a particular disposition to love. The, they really form bonds with humans, uh, and they give humans so much. And, and Lenny chose Sam for that special relationship. He, he had it with, with me to an extent, because I trained him and I walked him and so forth. But he was Sam's dog. And he slept on Sam's bed, and he and he comforted Sam when Sam felt awful with all this chemo. Sam died in 2011. Lenny died in February this year. Uh, he was two months short of 17. Mm. And of course, you know, I was very, very attached to Lenny. But no more, I think, than many dog companions are attached to their dogs. They're, they're very easy to love. Are there any particular stories that you want to share with us about Lenny and Sam? Because I've heard of the wonderful companions that dogs will often make with either children who have special needs or children who are very ill, as it sounds like Sam was. Well, Sam was, and he also had special needs because he had Down syndrome. Lenny was just infinitely tolerant. Sam would pick him up, uh, or once he picked him up and stuffed him headfirst into a basket. And, and, <laughs> and he Lenny was fine just with that. <laughs> he, was, he was fine with that. And uh, and things like, you know, if Sam had had a, an icy pole, he'd stick the wooden thing that the pole's around. I've probably got a name, which I can't think of. Paddle pop stick. Yes, thank you. And <laughs> and he'd stick in his mouth, and, and, and he and Lenny would have tug of war, uh, which which Lenny would inevitably win because his jaws were much better equipped. But they, you know, they'd both have a grand time while they were doing it. You've written about dogs several times in your columns for The Age. And I remember with that column where you were talking about Lenny's death in February of 2022, you say that a dog's selfless faithfulness is a tiny picture of God's faithfulness. Can you give us a sense of what you meant by that, what you were thinking when you wrote that? I think that uh, dogs teach us a few things about God. Uh, I want to be careful here. I don't in any way suggest that God is like a dog, uh, only that there are lessons for us. God is consummate love. God is uh, faithful to his promises. Uh, God is entirely and totally trustworthy in every circumstance. And we get a picture, just a picture of that from dogs with their faithfulness, their loyalty, the fact that they love us whether we are nice to them or not, which is quite remarkable. Their uh, unconditional love, really, it's, 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 it's a picture of grace. Uh, it's, it's a small and inadequate picture of grace. And dogs show me that. They show me something else too. They show me gratitude. I give thanks every day, I really do, for Lenny when he was alive and for Nessie now. I count my blessings. For me, gratitude is absolutely at the centre of religion. Uh, it is the proper and appropriate response to life and all the things that God gives us. And I am so grateful for, for my dogs. I'm so grateful for uh, all the things that they have done for me. I mean, my wife feels that Nessie has kept me alive. I'm approaching 70, I'm uh, overweight, I've got high blood pressure and so on, but I get up every morning at 7 o'clock and, and I take Nessie for two walks a day, every day, no matter what the weather. We have always done this with our dogs. They they just give so much. Uh, when I was getting ready for this interview, I, I woke up at 3 in the morning and couldn't get back to sleep, so I got up for an hour and a half and I saw a, a site that said there are 10 medical benefits that dogs give us. Can I run through them quickly? Please. Okay. First of all, um, dogs make us feel less alone. So that they're really, really good for people who are depressed or lonely or, or isolated. The companionship they offer is very real and measurable. And second, 
they're, they're good for our hearts. They, they lower our blood pressure, they lower our cholesterol, they lower our triglycerides, and they, and they keep us healthy in that way. They reduce stress, they um, help us cope with and recover from crises and so forth. They keep us you know, calm in, in, in those situations and help us express and get rid of those uh, feelings that, that make them so difficult. They encourage us to move. As I've said, you know, I wouldn't get up at seven if I didn't have Nessie. And if I don't get up at seven, like on Saturdays, it's my lie-in day, then I find that the rest of the day is, um, everything's delayed. It's very good for me to get up at that time. Um, She's an alarm clock dog. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What, what have I left out? Um, they make you more likable. They make us more sociable. I've often advised people who say they're lonely to just, if they haven't got a dog, just to go to walk in the dog park and admire somebody else's dog. Always works. That's a lovely dog. Oh, and off you go into a conversation. Instant friends. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they make us happier. Um, you know, the release of oxytocin when you look into a dog's eyes. Interestingly, their levels of oxytocin rise as well. It's, it's entirely symbiotic. I did read that, actually. Isn't that so interesting that everyone's releasing cuddle hormone when they're near dogs and looking at them? Well, nearly everyone. And we've heard Nessie's name a couple of times, but can you just tell us a bit of detail about her? I think in a column you did write that she is a daily reminder of the grace of God. In what way? She spends um, 18 to 22 hours a day in my company because she sleeps at the foot of my bed. And I work from home, and uh, and we go for, as I say, for at least two walks a day. I continue to train her to do, you know, little tricks and things, because you've got to keep a dog interested. But she just enriches my life uh, so much. I, sometimes I think she's a, an emotional support animal for me. I didn't wasn't aware that I needed one, but uh, perhaps I do. I've I've always called her my Mary Poppins dog, because she's practically perfect in every way. Um, mm -hmm. except for last night, so let's not get too carried away. We'll leave you to imagine for yourselves what Nessie did last night to break her perfect streak. But at this point of our chat, I realised that Barney was helping me pay attention to my language. I was talking about dog owners. Whereas Barney, it turns out, prefers to describe them as companions. And I guess that's apt, because when it comes to the dog-human relationship, who owns who, or who belongs to who... I think it turns out that humans and dogs might actually belong to each other. She's quite peremptory sometimes. You know, if I come into where I am now in the computer uh, and, and there's, there's a bed in here, she's only allowed on the bed if I'm lying on top of it. So she'll sort of look at it very pointedly and look at me and then look at the bed and say, get away from the computer. It's time for us to have a, you know, a lie down. <laughs> oh, a wonderful companion to have at work <laughs> as well as at home. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Barney, of course, in one of these columns, you throw some terrible shade at cats. You say that on the one hand, Nessie, I think it was his column, is joyful, loving, eternally forgiving. And then you have the nerve to suggest that cats, of course, I'm quoting you directly, are dispatched from below. I can hear the howls of protest from cat lovers. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, well, look, people um, are often attracted to the wrong things in life. We, that's, that's just a fact. <laughs> Um, no, I, look, I understand that cats bring great satisfaction to their owners. And uh, it, was, it was a throwaway line, which I'm afraid when it appeared, some people took seriously because they were letters to and complaining about it. Uh, it's just my sense of humour, that's all.
You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and with Justine Tone. I've enjoyed this one, Justine. Oh, I'm glad. I'm so glad. Well, thanks also to Barney for the chat, because not every day you get to talk about dogs with your friends at work. And also to Nick Spencer for letting us play a part of the excellent interview that he did with John Gray. I'm going to post a link to the whole episode of Reading Our Time so you can check it out for yourself. It's well worth the listen. And as we finish, here's a thought from the book, Dog is Love, that Barney mentioned. This is a quote. We humans need to be doing much more to honour and return our dog's affection. Their ability to love us simply demands reciprocation. They deserve our love in return for the love they give so freely. Well, that's a provocative thought, especially if, as Barney claims, dogs show us a tiny picture of the love of God. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to help us produce life and faith, please do consider financial support. You can go to publicchristianity.org and click on the donate button. $2 or more is tax deductible. Next week. When do you think the president found out about Watergate and the cover-up? I haven't any idea, Senator. I haven't any idea at all.